Hello and welcome to the Flatland in Focus podcast. I'm your host, D. Rashawn Gilmore, and you may know me from our monthly show airing every Thursday on Kansas City PBS. Each month we focus on a new topic impacting folks in the greater KC area, and we always end up with so many great questions from the panel of experts and community members that we assemble. So in this podcast series, we want to give you everything we couldn't fit into that neat 30-minute show. So this includes everything from Flatland follow-up as well, our audience conversation that goes live on Instagram every third Thursday at 7.30 p.m., right after our show airs. So join me as we dive into this month's topic, resources for family caregivers of aging adults. Welcome back to the discussion portion of today's program. With me around the table, we have Heath Rath, the executive director of Pace KC, Derek Phillips, who's looking after his mother, and Laura Loyacano, public policy consultant specializing on aging, and Rachel Hiles, former family caregiver and founder of Sandwiched KC, a support group for family caregivers. Derek, I'm going to throw out the first question to you. I know that you're looking after your mother, and that's to be distinguished from caregiving in what way? Um... The biggest reason or the biggest difference is that my mother doesn't have any serious medical issues. She's very independent. And so I, I like to give her the space that she needs. So I don't feel like I'm taking care of her. I feel like I'm just there, you know, to be around for the things that she might need. And But she's independent enough that she doesn't need anybody taking care of her but it's clear that she shouldn't be by herself. Very good. So, so, so what happens when the time comes when she's not able to care for herself as independently as she might now? Are you having those conversations with her? And by the way, your mother is how old? 93. 93. So... Presumably, at some point, there may be a, a need for additional assistance. Are you then planning to transition more to a caregiver it's role? It's been a very difficult discussion. Okay. One that we really have not had. We It, get, it gets hinted at. But it's something I don't think she wants to truly approach. So what then do we do in cases cases like that uh, where you have more than uh, more than a little bit of support that's needed for a family member, right? But at the same time, they're not ready for living alone. Heath, I imagine in your work, you're seeing a lot of that, or these stories are probably not uh, at all uncommon to you. What is usually the advice that you have for families? I think it's really about right-sizing the level of support that the individual needs with the services that are available in the community. And it's about really ensuring that um, it's an individual-specific preference or care plan. It's not a one uh, you know, one um, size fits all solution. Sure. It's individualized based on someone's personal level of need. So that makes me want to ask you a question, uh, Rachel, talking about community services that are available, being a caregiver. You know, in your experience as a caregiver for your grandmother, that inspired you to create supports for others. Can you talk a little bit about Sandwich KC and how it's impacted families in our area? Sure. Well, we launched Sandwich Casey in 2018. I uh, was midway through my caregiving mission with my grandma. Uh, and as a millennial, I uh, was having a hard time identifying with the supports that were out there mm. for caregivers. Uh, lots of the support groups met during the day or strange times and, uh, just didn't make sense for somebody like me who at the time was working a full-time 
uh, career and uh, also caring for my grandmother. So at the end of the day, I was exhausted. I did not have the energy to get ready, get in the car, drive around town uh, to go meet a room full of strangers I didn't know. It could be a very taxing experience. Uh, so that's why we launched Sandwich. We've been meeting virtually since 2018 before anybody had heard of Zoom. <laughs> um, and uh, I think Meeting that way gives caregivers uh, anonymity, yeah. uh, if you will, um, and they, you know, they don't even have to show their face if they don't want to. Uh, they could drop in. They could come every time. Um, it's flexible, which is what caregivers need. Well, let me uh, let me go back to something that you said that I think is really interesting. You were caring for your grandmother at a time when you had a life of your own and you're trying to, you, you said it, it could be exhausting, but I'm curious to know what sort of self-care uh, tools or resources or even strategies did you employ so that you could find some balance in your own life? That's a great question. Um, I got to be honest. Uh, sometimes I didn't really pay attention to that aspect of my life. Uh, it's really not easy uh, when you're caring for a loved one, especially if you weren't very good at it to begin with. Um, for me, it meant uh, lining up uh, caregivers that I knew and trusted uh, to be with my grandma when I needed to take a break uh, or finding activities that she could do uh out in the community, like at church or the senior center, uh, so that I didn't have to be with her every waking moment. Fair enough. Uh, you know, one of our viewers submitted a question of their own through our Curious KC uh, initiative, and they asked, are we prepared in the world of healthcare and affordable housing for the boom of older folks who are choosing to age at home in the coming years? And so, Laura, I ask you, are we ready for what's coming? I mean, just the fact that in Kansas City, the number of people 65 and older is set to double uh, between the years 2010 and 2030. How prepared are we? We are not prepared. Okay, well, there's an answer. Okay. <laughs> we are not prepared. Why not? Uh, well, <clears throat> we depend on fa family caregivers. It's about a $600 billion industry, unpaid labor, that, that we provide for aging adults. Um, usually, the person who provides that care is a woman. Um, a 49-year-old woman is the, is the statistic, and um, it... Um, perpetuates a cycle of, of um, feminization of poverty, let's mm. say, because women live longer. Uh, women are, are usually 70% uh, are, are likely to be uh, female caregivers. And so they just do not have the support uh, that they need. And we don't have the resources that we need um, or the policies in place to support what's coming for all of us. We're all getting older, right? It's here. Exactly. If you're fortunate enough to live long enough, right, you, you, you're going to get older. And so that makes me just really kind of concerned about folks having awareness of and then access to resources within the community, both for their own individual self-care, but for a person who may be aging in place with or without a family. And certainly if you do have a family, they're all incorporated in that. And so Heath, I'm sure every day you're faced with a situation, as Laura just said, that we don't have the resources, but PACE is attempting to address some of that. I'm interested to know how. 
Yeah, so, so PACE really was founded on the belief that it's best for older adults with a skilled nursing level of care need to age in their community and in their homes as opposed to being institutionalized. So many times, that's the answer, and yep. it's premature. Uh, with additional supports or wraparound services, so many older adults could remain independent in their home for a significant amount longer, if not indefinitely. And it shouldn't be the, the standard or the, um, you know, the automatic response that as soon as someone uh, needs some additional care, we move for an institutionalized setting, such as assisted living or skilled nursing. Um, there's, there's other options out there that are home and community-based services that we just really have not invested in. So I, I've got a sort of a round-robin question for the entire panel, but I, I have to ask you this question, Laura. I feel like you might be the, the person to, to know. Is this a uniquely American problem or an American issue? I talk to so many of my friends who live in other parts of the world, different cultures. They would never even consider having their elders live any place or age any place but home. Is this something that we're not getting right as a culture and a society, or are we ahead of the curve and it, we just haven't? caught up with the rest of the world in some ways. Well, we're, we haven't made the public policy investment to support people that can take things like Family and Medical Leave Act. So the other countries um, may have um, arrangements for their parents to be able to go and, and age either in place or, or um, in a residential facility. But countries, uh, more countries around the uh, world have policies that support me being able to take time off from work to care for not just a child, but for an aging or disabled family member. Um, and that is something that is constantly being um, debated, getting caught, yeah. caught in, you know, political and partisan wrangling. Um, this is something that was proposed last year in the Build Back Better plan that right. um, the president proposed. It was, he was proposing a lot of support for family caregivers for, for stipend or support for, for people to help their families and loved ones age in place. And it just got caught, you know, in politics. So, so I was just going to say, it really is not only a policy issue, but it's the politics of the issue right. that are really sort of, it sounds like, hindering us from making right. some significant change and being able to properly fund the resources that you talked about, Heath. And so that begs this question, and I'm going to start with you, Derek, uh, just your thoughts on how can caregivers and family members um, uh, create an environment that respects the independence and the the even the, the autonomy of elderly family members while still ensuring that they're able to be uh, well cared for, that they are safe as they age in place? I think, well, at least part of the answer is observing, listening, if you will, and knowing what what your your loved one really needs what they like, what they enjoy, and what can you do to provide that for them, or maybe provide the support system mm -hmm. so that they can do those things that they want to do, love to do. And at the same time, what do you need to do on the, on the outside, on the backside, so to have their back, if you mm -hmm. will? What do you need to do to have their back? Can, so you, can you say can more about that? What, what does it mean, or what do you mean when you say to have their back? Um, just in terms of reinforcing the support of the decision to age in place or something else? That's, that, that's definitely part of it, okay. reinforcing the decision. I also think that a lot of it just has to do with um, supporting um, the activities that the loved one likes to do. 
Mm. You know, saying, oh, you like to do this? Okay, we will do that. How, how do I get you to the shopping center or, or to, to church or to whatever it is that you like to do? And I think a lot of it really is just listening. So I, I, out of my periphery, I could see you furiously nodding over there, Rachel. So I'm going to bounce over to you. What is your answer to that question of, you know, how do you create that environment mm-hmm. that respects their autonomy and their independence, but also puts in place whatever appropriate systems, tools, protocols, whatever, to ensure their safety and well-being as they age in place. Certainly. I think uh, Derek's right about a lot of those things. Uh, a lot of it is behind the scenes. Uh, sometimes I kind of felt like the Wizard of Oz behind, <laughs> pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Uh, there were lots of things that I did for my grandma. Of course, her needs were very different, and every sure. situation is mm-hmm. unique, like you said, uh, that nobody ever even knew about. Um, but I think when it comes down to it, like Derek said, is focusing on what they enjoy, but mm. uh, not perseverating on, you know, what is being lost, uh, yeah. medical conditions, abilities, but f- instead focusing on strengths. Um, when you focus on a person's strengths, then you're able to bridge that gap mm-hmm. uh, behind the scenes. Uh, sometimes and also uh, able to open doors to conversations about those gaps with your loved ones. Well, those are really perfect answers. I was I was going to ask a, that question of the rest of the panel, but I'm going to throw a different question out to, to you, Heath, and then I have another question for you, Laura. Just, you know, what role does community engagement play in enhancing the quality of life for elderly people who want to remain in their homes? And, uh, you know, are, are they... Um, inspiring, are there any inspiring examples that you've encountered of people who just seem to have gotten it right? Yeah, so great question, because it's it's really important to remain socially engaged, because isolation and loneliness yeah, yeah. are just as detrimental to someone's health as other risky behaviors. Yeah, smoking. many many would say that it accelerates the deterioration of, Ab- of, of, of the body and mind. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So, so just that simple fact of doing things that Continue to make sure that you have meaningful experience. It's not only, you know, going through the motions of, of bingo or whatever yeah. it may be. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. Uh, there's lots of fans <laughs> of bingo out there, and uh, we will not uh, remove that right, anytime. We're not to them right. Yeah. No, no. But uh, it's really about a meaningful experience and meaningful activities because reducing that social isolation is going to help reduce uh, depression, anxiety, and a whole host of other uh, not psychosocial issues, actual yes. physical manifestations of that isolation loneliness. So, Laura, and this is a tough one, but I, I, I bet you can handle it. You know, what are some of the disparities between the resources available across different demographics uh, and counties just in this area? And I will add to that question, if you can opine on this a little bit, what is the singular greatest need for policymakers to really focus their attention on. So what are those disparities across counties? But then what is it that we need policymakers, legislators to be doing to begin to remediate some of these concerns we're talking about? Sure. So um, actually, Heath and I have been doing some work in this area. Um, Missouri luckily has resources available to counties and senior centers and other providers. Um, counties can vote 
to pass a senior levy, for example. Um, the problem is here in Kansas City, where we span across three counties, our neighbors to the north, Clay and Platte County, both have senior levies that um, take a portion of property tax, a very modest portion, and it goes into support programs like Meals on Wheels, minor home repairs, mm -hmm. uh, transportation, and that helps undergird um, uh, and give a little respite to family members to, so the person can be independent, get themselves to the doctor, um, have meals delivered when they need them, but also supports low-income people that um, don't have those family members ready to step in. Unfortunately, we don't have the resources we need in the um, highest poverty mm -hmm. part of Kansas City, which is Jackson County. And that's something that we're really looking at, what we can do to support minor home repairs, transportation and um, uh, meals on meals on wheels and other programs that provide su nutritional support for elders you know I just have to say it just it just strikes me as so bewildering that something as seemingly simple and obvious but impactful is what you just described meals on wheels the transportation side of things that that shouldn't be any sort of political issue and i imagine and rachel perhaps you have some thoughts on this but i imagine that for the individual who is trying to live their life and take care of a family member at the same time and make sure that they have what they need and they feel supported but now there's this other element of almost having to become an advocate uh in, in some ways i mean working with groups and folks like heath and laura is that what Sandwich KC has been trying to do, or is it purely support group for caregivers who are like, oh my God, I need somebody to understand what I'm dealing with, and maybe I can learn from, from their experience? Well, we're more about providing one-on-one -on -one support to family caregivers. Okay. Of course, we're going to support anything that benefits family caregivers. Uh, one thing uh, I did want to kind of tack on is that uh, a lot of calls we get are from families who uh, don't qualify for those types of programs because of financial criteria. You know, perhaps their loved one makes too much money uh, or has, you know, too many uh, assets. Um, and so, um, I think there's a great need across demographics, um, as far as that goes. And, uh, I think, you know, expanding all the programs so that anybody, you know, who really is eligible for them, that would be a great move forward. That's, you know, it, it raises the, the specter for me of, you know, if there are specific stories or maybe um, incidents or occasions or moments that highlight the importance of your role as a caregiver and a looker after her, uh, <laughs> as in the case of, uh, of Derek and his mom, um, but how has that experience shaped your perspective of aging and caregiving? And does it trickle into your head a little bit about, okay, what happens when it's my time? Yes, I made a face. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I made a face because one of the statistics that you quoted, uh, Laura, is I'm, I'm in that age group. Mm. Yeah, I'm pushing 70. So I know that, uh oh, I need to step it up too, you know, but, and, and maybe this experience will aid that one. Okay. But I'm not at the point where I can even think about that yet. I have something more immediate you know, to deal with, um, that, so my, my focus right now is really on, on the caregiving role, on the caretaking role, on the looking after role. Right. I'm more there, but it is informing the fact mm. that 
I'm going to need to deal with this myself somehow. What am I going to have to put into place to make sure that I'm looked after when it's time for me to be looked after? One day this thing isn't going to work as well. That's right, yeah. Yeah, and I, I'm aware of that. Uh, I'm trying to keep it in shape. But, yeah, what's going to happen? And I don't know the answer to that. I truly don't. But I think I'm getting some information that may help me answer it when I need to. There we go. And I'm hoping that conversations like these are continuing to happen outside of this context, obviously, but I I feel really privileged to be able to take an opportunity to highlight both the need, but also the resources that are available and the work that's being done to, from a systemic level, be able to support uh, the, the community as well. And there's so many families who are finding themselves in that space. And just one final statistic is that in 2020, 48.9 million people were caregiving for an aging adult. So that means just about every family or household in some way or another at some point in time is going to be faced with the same dilemma. Uh, That's where we wrap up today's conversation for this episode of Flatland in Focus. You've been hearing from Derek Phillips, Heath Rath with Pace KC, policy consultant Laura Loyacano, and Rachel Hiles with Sandwich KC. You can watch that panel discussion along with our accompanying documentary on our website at flatlandshow.org. Up next, we have our Flatland follow-up where you get to ask our guests your burning questions. And so for those of you who are joining us, uh, my name is D. Rashawn Gilmore. I'm the host of Flatland in Focus on Kansas City PBS. Our show airs every third Thursday of the month at 7 o'clock p.m. And on our most recent episode, which aired just a few minutes ago, I was joined in studio by one of our guests on the Flatland follow-up here tonight, uh, Laura Loyacano, who is a public policy consultant and uh, was on the panel and shared quite a bit with us about where we need to go in terms of policy around how people can, if they can, age in place. And so Mary, I'm uh, Mary, sorry, Laura, I'm going to jump right in and just ask you, you know, one of the groups that we did not really get to talk about on the show, we were kind of talking about afterwards, was older LGBTQ folks. And I, I of course, care about this issue very much, being a member of that community. But I wonder, does aging in place for most folk who are uh, LGBTQ mean aging in place alone? And can you talk a little little bit about what those supports are like? Because if these are people who've been maybe not connected to family or ostracized in some way, or perhaps even persons living with HIV or AIDS because they were around, especially at the height of the epidemic, what is life like for them? That's exactly right. Um, Many of our LGBTQ um, um, elders, people in their 70s, 80s, and and later, Many of them don't have access to those adult caregivers that we were talking about. Thinking back to what we said on the show, right? The uh, typical profile of a caregiver is an unpaid daughter, 49, 50 years of age. And so it might follow that that many of our LGBTQ older folks don't have um, that daughter or, or like you said, or don't have that connection to family. And so that would be one concern um, that has been expressed to, to me and to, to those of us who work in the in aging policy is what are we going to do to make sure that those people aren't isolated? Mm. A lot of them are concerned that, that they don't 
know how to seek each other out, right? Like they may not even necessarily be closeted, but they may be living in a new um, nursing home or even an independent living facility. What can we do as a community to help them find each other and find that support that they need so that they can not feel isolated and have a sense of community, um, even if they're living in a, in a care facility? So, so let me ask a question. If they're in a care facility, that means for the most part, they've already either had made the decision or decision was made for them that they would not be able to age in place at home. How do we create the structures and the supports that are necessary for uh, aging LGBT elders to be able to enjoy the experience of aging? And I know that comes with some, 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 some barriers and some challenges too, as we talked about on the show, but how do they get to create that sort of support structure? Well, I think we have to create, help create that and tap into existing structures as as members of our LGBTQ community age at the same pace as all of us, right? Yeah. Um, I think they're starting to realize that maybe some supports and some networking that they had, um, it, it's going to look very differently. So we had a, a, a focus group, actually, Casey Shepherd Center, where I work, um, did a focus group and brought together a group of LGBTQ um, older people and and others recently. And one of the things that they mentioned is when they were younger, they maybe had the bar scene yeah, or they yeah. had going out or pride. And, and, they, and that they, was the community for some That was the people. community, right? right? Yeah. And now it may look different. And um, the, the other thing I thought was very interesting that came out of that discussion is people con were concerned about the welfare and support of their pets Mm. Um, that that maybe they have a dog or a cat or, or multiple pets. What's going to happen to those pets? They're very important to them. That's their emotional support. They're, they're concerned that if they go into nursing or skilled nursing or, um, or assisted living, will they be able to have their pets? So there's um, groups that are emerging, and I think people are becoming more sensitive to the fact that we need to help help connect people and help connect organizations and then help the um, senior organizations, senior centers, and living facilities recognize that people may not feel comfortable talking about their orientation, and they will have to make it more comfortable for them. And I think that's such an important topic. And in fact, I want to broaden the conversation a little bit along those lines. So when we talk about aging in place, and, and for most people, it, it does seem to be a bit of a luxury, um, but on the other hand, it's not. It's 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 really a necessity. It's a luxury, maybe for those who have the option to be somewhere else, um, but they get the choice to also be at home. But for those who don't have the financial resources or the other supports, it's not even an option to age in place at home. And one of the things you talked about on the panel with us on the show a little bit ago was the fact that. In our community, we have just not done the job of making sure that the resources are there. But I really, I mean, in my experience, and I think it's probably just true of life, that policy or resources follow policy. And so what are we getting wrong on a policy basis that's not seeing us allocate appropriate resources um, for families that want to age in place? Is it that government feels like, well, you, you take care of your grandmother and that's your family's problem and not, not an issue for the state as it were to be involved? What are we getting wrong that it makes it so challenging for so many people to be able to age in place at home safely uh, and to actually be able to thrive for that matter? Well, I was, I was just thinking about to the, the video that you showed earlier of the um, West Side family that felt very strongly about taking care of their own. Um, 
And, and I think maybe some policymakers assume that's going to happen for them. Um, I think, as I said, we're all getting older, including them. So they're realizing that everybody's going to need that respite yeah. care. Even the caregivers are going to need the care. Um, if we think about, I'm just going to uh, hit, hit you with another statistic. If you think right. about the social isolation isolation of, a, of older people and maybe LGBTQ elders, an LGBTQ person of color Think about that. They're more than yeah. three times as likely as their um, white counterparts to live in poverty. And if they're living in community where they're still closeted or maybe just don't have the resources they need, that's a real problem. So I think policymakers probably need to be confronted with and look at the statistic, look, look at what's happening around us. It's fabulous that we're all living longer. It's great. We're in the workplace yeah. longer. We're able to give to our community. But if we don't, um, if we just presume that people are going to figure it out, um, they're figuring wrong because there's just too many of us and it's happening too quickly. So what does it look like in a community like ours where obviously, as you said, we have an aging population and really, quite honestly, where we're, I mean, the baby boomers are, are, are booming. There's just a huge movement of folks that are in that age range where it's like they're not in the workplace anymore. They're finding lesser and lesser or fewer and fewer supports in terms of community because maybe they don't have uh, the social supports. What is life like then? I mean, how is, how is somebody supposed to have a full and meaningful existence as they age if they don't have connectivity to those supports or to social, uh, so, social elements and resources? Right. So uh, we all are probably familiar with Meals on Wheels, which, sure. which bring a meal into a person's home. Um, you probably won't be surprised to find out that a lot of times the Meals on Wheels person who, de who delivers that meal every day is the only person that some older people have any contact that's with. That's a valuable all. connection. Right. That's just not somebody who's providing a service. That's, that, that becomes a, a friend. You build a rapport almost. That's exactly right. So if they're, um, we rely on, on volunteers to do the Meals on Wheels. There are government supports in place, federal dollars that flow through localities to prepare the meals. But what a lot of us are really working on is to expand the role of that Meals on Wheels program to not just deliver a meal, but to recognize that they're providing that social connectivity. They're often the ones to alert the, the care, the family members or a medical person, if that person clearly is not eating properly, if they haven't been taking care of themselves, um, if their if their pet is ill, even uh, the Meals on Wheels um, uh, services often provide pet food and, and pet support and medicine. And it's we should be recognizing that those people that are not there to just deliver a meal, but they should be um, also better trained and we should have better resources so that they can provide some of those wraparound services, those social services, and, um, and also um, culturally appropriate meals, fresh fruits and veggies, not just frozen foods, but recognizing their culture, say they don't eat pork, exactly, or they yeah. have an allergy, or they're not, they want locally um, sourced fruits and vegetables that would contribute to their health and longevity. That's, that's hard to, deli to deliver with limited resources. Which is so important though. I think about my own grandmother who was 93 years old, who was a Muslim woman. And fortunately she's able to age in place with, with my mom and my dad and, and family all around her. And it's a beautiful thing, but I know that there have been times when uh, the thought of joining certain programs or these meals and wills or that sort of thing, which I think is a, a 
fabulous program. We actually have one commenter here, uh, one viewer, who uh, is, is echoing what you said. It's so true, Laura. I deliver meals on wheels, and you're absolutely right. Um, but I think about my own grandmother. I mean, those kind of things do come into play where you need to think about the cultural sensitivities as well as things that impact that, like food, diet, and nutrition, that sort of thing. And so I, I think the challenge that I have in wrapping my head around this issue is it just seems like it's so easy. But as with most things that seem so easy, it just seems like so common sense, like you just do these things that you're describing. Why aren't we moving more in that direction? Or are we? Is my read on that wrong? Are there things happening? Is there a movement happening that maybe I'm just not aware of? I think I think there is movement. I think that we have to be careful to um, try to traverse the politics, which are so shrill right now, right? Especially at the state and federal level. These are bipartisan issues. Um, Elder um, policy is not a Democrat or Republican or an independent issue. It's an all of us issue, right? But when it comes down to allocating resources, that becomes really tough. And and states like the ones ones that we live in, (laughs) it happens all too often. And and it happens at at the federal level as well. I do. I do think that um, hopefully in Jackson County, um, as we've gone through this last issue with property taxes, and so many of our older people have really spoken out. I think that's really caught in the ear of policymakers. Uh, we may not have solutions right now for how to deal with the property taxes or how to deal with the uh, lack of affordable housing for everybody, including older people. But I think. If there was any good that's coming out of this, I think it's that this group is, they vote. They're vocal, they, exactly. They yes. pay attention. <laughs> they get, they, they watch, they watch PBS, right? That's and right. they will write to their legislators or their Congress people. So I think that's really important. I think it's empowering that organizations like the ones that I work with, like, you know, uh, so many of the organizations you had on today from AARP to Shepherd Center to Pace Casey, that we empower our older people to vote and to, to get politically active and to and try, try to influence policy, not just for themselves, but, you know, for, for all older people. Well, and as you said, this, this is an issue that affects all of us. And I think that if anybody feels like, well, I'm disconnected from that issue because I don't have anybody in my life or family, uh, you're not disconnected from it. Because ultimately, if we are not providing those supports in one way or another, we're going to provide them later. And it's going to be more costly later. And not only that, there's just the humanity of it all. I feel like we ought to be able to, we ought to want to care for our neighbors and our elders. And you rightly said it, they are vocal, they are voting, and politicians would do very well to to listen and not take that group for granted. Uh, And I just want to pause for a moment and say that we did have uh, Todd Hess from Shepherd Center Executive Director, and I know he was planning to join us, but for some reason, the technology is telling me that Todd is unable to join us. So I apologize, Todd. I'm not sure why the, the tech is saying that, but um, we've got obviously a great spokesperson here, and Laura, we'll, we'll continue with the conversation. But I wanted to shift a little bit because in Todd's story, here you have somebody who sort of wound up taking care of his own mother. I don't necessarily want you to tell his story per se, but can you talk about what it's like for so many people who maybe don't expect to be taking care of a loved one in this way while they age in place at home or with them at home, what that journey is like? Uh, and, and I imagine there are a lot of really tough conversations that have to happen because everything changes. Um, if you somebody who's raising kids 
and now you've got you know an elderly parent or grandparent that you're taking care of. I mean, you're in that sort of sandwich generation. But could you talk about just from your experience the journey that you've seen people sort of walk down as they approach this this issue of potentially being able to age in place? Sure. I I mentioned earlier that I, I this is. This is an everybody issue, but I think it's in particular a women's issue. Yeah. I think the statistics really bear that out. You know, I know, I know. We obviously all of us have experiences, no matter the gender, but but oftentimes this falls to the woman, just like yes. like child rearing. And um, in my case, um, I have older people in my life. I, my um, my mom's eighty five. I have um, you know an older father and a father in law, and um, I spend an incredible amount of time just supporting them. They both are in health and, and they're, they're both, they're retired teachers. Mm. They have a pension. They're in facilities where, you know, independent living where they're taking care of and still driving to the doctor, driving to get the MRI, um, picking up the supplies that they need, um, comforting them when they're nervous, um, traversing a new care provider, their rent goes up and you have to negotiate. Even sw- doing things like switching a cable television. You're on, I, I'm, yeah, I, yeah. I spend one of you guys on the phone for like 10 hours with the, with the t- television, just trying to switch over. I'm just going to ask you, how many hours a week would you estimate that you spend a week or a month, whatever the, the, the metric is, but how much time as a percentage would you estimate that you spend just doing some of the things you're describing. I have to, I have to be honest. I, I spend at between 10 and 20 hours a week wow. and it has affected, it affects a lot of us. It affects our um, living arrangements, where we live in the city. It affects the kind of work that we can take because we have to have that flexibility to care for those people. We love them and want to care for them, but they need us. Right. And so um, it, it just, cons- I know how much time I spend and the people on the video that you showed how much time they spend. Can you imagine if you don't have that kind of support, if you don't have that caregiver or if you're, um, a houseless veteran, for example, or, or it's, and that's it's a big it's population. Real. Yeah, it is. It is real, and the problem is real. Um, the the uh, lack of affordable housing. There, there's there's a, health, a policy, yeah. right? It affects older people greatly, and we don't often think about that. But it is a big. It has a big effect on them. With if they have to move, if they have to downsize, if they have to move to a more suitable. Um, place where they have uh, wheelchair access or access to a hospital bed um, or even just a smaller house with fewer steps in front. Um, that affects us all if they if they can't move. So I just want to say to our viewers, if you're just now tuning in, you've been watching the Flatland follow-up and I'm Dear Sean Gilmore, host of Flatland and Focus on Kansas City PBS. And I am so privileged to uh, be joined again uh, by Laura Loyacano, who is a public policy consultant on this issue of aging. And I I enjoyed having you in the panel and the discussion that we had. And I had so many questions just sort of flitting through my mind, but I thought, you know what, while we're talking about some of these challenges, and I see some of the comments here really are sort of echoing what you're saying, but could you describe for folks the benefits of allowing or encouraging or supporting an elder or someone maybe who has a disability aging in place at home? What what are the good sides of that? What are the benefits of that? Because I imagine one of them is probably longevity. I mean, you've got the, the social interaction, you've got the connection to family, um, activities happening around you, not just off in isolation, uh, but I'm sure there are other benefits that I'm probably not thinking of. 
Sure. There's benefits to the individual and the family, right? Is that they're in a familiar place that they feel comfortable with. AARP has done many, many surveys and they've discovered that people really do prefer to age in place. But let's talk about the benefit to communities. Yes. Think about those older people, the people that live in those communities that invested, that went to school there, that raised kids there. We should be doing everything that we can as a city and a region to help them stay and age in place and to have policies and resources to help them stay there. Sometimes, and I've talked to a lot of older people, I bet you have too, maybe even your family members, that their wants are pretty small. You know, they may need, I, t- I talked to a lady. So small. She <laughs> said, all I need, I mean, grab bars and then the toilet and that sort of thing. She goes, all I need is a light in my closet so I can see my hats. Right. I mean, sometimes it's a small thing that they're asking for a a home modification. They may need someone to come in and help them do that. And so there are some resources in place for minor home repair. Other times they may need a ramp or they may need something more substantial. But think think about the things in a neighborhood and in a community that helps an older person, let's say, um, be able to live successfully and get their groceries, right? Access to public transit, a, a curb or a sidewalk without big bumps in it that they can walk with their walker. But you know who else uses that? People with stress. Everybody. Families, exactly, right? Yeah. <laughs> Nobody wants a bumpy sidewalk. Right. Everybody can benefit by that um, nice curb cut when they cross the street and a light so that they can cross safely and access to transit that takes yes. them where they need to go, right? All of us benefit by that. And I would say all of us benefit by having older people who want to be able to age in place in their homes because it stabilizes not just the family, but the community around them. I couldn't agree more and I was, as you were talking about some of the small things that oftentimes folks need it's a, a, a ramp or a light in the closet that sort of thing for my grandmother um, hers was technology based it was really important for her to have an iPhone so that she could FaceTime family members um, but one of the sort of side benefits of that and she loves it I mean, she uses it religiously she called me just before the show aired tonight to let me know that she was going to be watching uh, but one of the Grandma. things that <laughs> yes I'm sure you will appreciate that One of the things that I was so taken aback by that was sort of a side benefit or a byproduct of that was that my little nephews who are T department. And so watching them (laughs) navigate her phone with her, oh, no, 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 you do it this way. It's been so just encouraging and beautiful to watch. But you get this intergenerational sort of thing. Otherwise, they wouldn't get to see their grandmother as their great grandmother as much. And it's a very beautiful thing to be able to. and and, And I know that she just... Every time she's able to make a FaceTime call on her own, I mean, you would think she had just won the publisher's clearinghouse or something. I mean, she is so excited. But what that has meant is that she feels like she's keeping sharp for that lady who just wants to be able to look at her hats in the closet. Like, that is a small thing. And I just feel like we should all be trying to do more to step up in those really small but significant ways that improve somebody's quality of life, that improve somebody's ability to feel like they have some degree of independence in their life, but that they have some support as well. And so I just, in the in the, in the last few minutes here, I would like to ask you, and this is a heavy burden to put on one <laughs> single individual person, so forgive me in advance for that, but I would like to ask you, Laura, to speak to two different groups of people directly and Take the next two or three minutes to do that if you need. One is to policymakers and really clear terms about what is needed, what is actionable, and what is necessary now. 
And then secondarily to the family who is either struggling in their journey to provide the care that is needed in support of a loved one um, and and maybe what they can be doing to sort of address their own need for self-care and respite as well. Well, I think to policymakers, I would say, take a close look at the data. The data is provided for you. Um, state of Missouri, state of Kansas, both have aging plans. We have census data. We can see that people are aging and where they're aging. But we can also see that there's a lot of people living in poverty. And so and so policymakers, I wish for all of us, uh, but they, I wish that they would use better data to make better decisions. And when allocating resources, um, allocating resources and services that are so important, like in the state, an ombudsman who can speak yeah. on behalf of um, aging people and their families, that position and that function really needs to be funded. Is, is that something that's ever been introduced in either state house uh, on Kansas or Missouri side? It has. And People, and it, it need, they need more funding. You know, it, it needs more attention. It's not good enough to just say we have it or we have an aging plan. That's very important, but we need to have actionable items. We need to have not just talk about property taxes are high, let's freeze property taxes. That may be true, but we have to find a way to have meaningful property tax relief for disabled people and older people, that really mean that means something, and that's helpful. And those um, those bills, uh, uh, one example is one that's making its way through the Missouri General Assembly. It's called the Circuit Breaker Tax Relief for Older People. It would provide um, it would provide property tax um, rebates for renters and homeowners, people on Social Security, but also people not on Social Security, and people who are disabled. Um, that's going to cost something. Uh, there is a surplus in the in the Missouri legislature right now, and I would say that would be a great investment if we look at the numbers. That would help a lot of people, and it would help people to age in place and stay in their homes. Um, so, before I ask you just to, to jump to the other question that I asked for the, the, the caregivers themselves and what they can do to, to enhance their self care, I want to say improve, but to enhance their self care, just on this policy piece for a moment, because I see one of the comments in the, the chat here is that absolutely proper allocation of resources. Obviously, that's necessary, but I really look at it as, you know, resources follows policy, policy follows priority setting, but there's another P even before that, and that's the politics of it. And I just don't understand, and, and we may not even have time to really unfold all of this, but I just don't understand what it is about caring for our elders, those who are with disabilities, that there seems to be this attitude that you're on your own. And it's not just commonplace in community. I'm not saying that's, I don't mean to pay with such a broad brushstroke for community, but that certainly seems to be the attitude among uh, legislators. And, and maybe I'm being too hard on them, I don't know, but it just seems like the politics somehow are getting in the way. But I go back to what you said earlier in the chat here, which is that, listen, this is something that affects all of us. So again, what is the issue? Right. And we should be looking at all of our policy and politics through that aging, aging land, right? Mm -hmm. When you build a new airport, what's it going to be like for a person, for an older person or for a disabled person, yeah. right? What, what, um, when we allocate resources um, or, or, you know, what is, what do those policies look like through that aging lens? And I think a lot of advocates are really trying to call, not, I wouldn't say call legislators on the carpet. Sometimes that's needed, yeah. but just to provide that data and to, and to kind of maybe parlay into the next part of your, your question is older people 
Um, every, everyone really needs to be in, paying attention, right, to what's yes. going on in Jefferson City and in Topeka and in Washington, D.C. and in Jackson County and everywhere, right? Yes. Older people should be more engaged and more knowledgeable about policies that affect them. We just went through a whole lot of voter access issues, right, yes. that greatly affected older people and people with disabilities in particular. I think that they are paying attention and and um, hopefully those elected officials and maybe more importantly, candidates will listen to them and um, take notice that that this is this is something that's coming for all of us. But this 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 group is engaged and I aim to help engage them. Right. I aim to educate them and the groups that I work for want to empower them so that they are more knowledgeable when they talk to city council candidates or the president of the United States, that they can advocate for those policies. <laughs> on their to own. hold them to account. Absolutely. And well, uh, in the waiting moments that we have here, I have to ask you to, to go to my second question, which is what is your message to those who are struggling um, in their journey with aging in place, perhaps as a caregiver with someone uh, in their family or in their life that they're trying to really walk this out. They want to be the kind of person that you're describing. How, how do I get there if I feel like this is so overwhelming or how do I get there if my life is so complicated and has so much going on? I just don't see how I can do it. Or maybe I jumped into it. And I am drowning. I just saw a commercial not too long ago that just said, um, I think it was one of those like, um, what's the a place for mom commercial? I think that's what it was. But it was basically saying, I love my mom, but I need help. What do you say to that person? I think that's true. Seek out the help. Know that you're not alone. Uh, all of us are going to be going through this on our own. <laughs> you know, we've lived that long, hopefully. And um, seek out those helps. Seek out places like, you know, Todd's Shepherd Center and, and the Shepherd Center. Seek out your um, uh, support from Pace KC. Realize that there are other people who are going through this. There are sometimes not adequate, but there are yeah. resources. Um, there are uh, resources out there for, for caregivers and there are resources out there for older people that are living in isolation. Depression and social isolation of our older people is a serious, Tough. serious problem. It got really bad with that pandemic. I hope that's woken us up some to check on our neighbors, to check on our loved ones, and to check ourselves. And I can't mm. end without talking about policy again. Advocate for policies that allow for family leave and flexible um, time at work and time off that all of us workers need, especially those of us who are caring for an older or, or, or fa family care family member who needs our help. Well, I'm going to sign off by quoting you <laughs> back to you or paraphrasing you back to you. Two things you just said. One is check yourself. And I think a lot of us need to do that. How are you contributing or not? How can you step up uh, if you're not? I think check yourself is, is very well said. And I also think this other piece of checking on your loved ones and making sure that they feel connected, that they feel supported, and that they actually are, that they have the supports, tools, and resources that they need. And there are several groups on Facebook that are providing support. Uh, Sandwich KC is one of those groups um, for caregivers who are looking for tools, resources, and community um, for folks who are empathetic to what they may be experiencing trying to provide care for a loved one who's aging in place. Um, 
I can't believe how quickly this time has flown by, but I think I told you when you were in studio with us that I, you and I could probably just talk one on one. This issue is just so it, it, it's it's so big and it seems so overwhelming, but it's not. And I appreciate so much, Laura, your outlining step by step some very basic but critical things we can all be doing, and certainly that legislators and policymakers can be doing at every level of government. I must say uh, that would really be very very helpful uh, to our viewers. Thank you so much for tuning in. This particular video will be posted on our Flatman KC Instagram story. It'll be on our website, but I want to encourage all of you to check out the story written by Mary Sanchez, who is one of my favorite reporters and friends, and it's a really great piece on our website. Check that out because it really dives into what it's like from almost every angle, but certainly for those of you who are in that space of trying to navigate aging in place. Thank you so much for your time. Laura Loyacano, who is a public policy consultant on aging. Thank you so much for being my new friend, for being a guest not only on the show, but you're on the Flatman follow-up. And to all of you, our viewers and friends, thanks so much for watching and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thanks again, Laura. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining our first ever Flatland in Focus podcast. Tune in for our next episode on the Central City Economic Development Plan, Thursday, October 19th at 7 p.m. on Kansas City PBS and at flatlandshow.org. And be sure to join us on our Instagram for our live stream Flatland follow-up immediately following the show, which airs at 7.30 p.m. to ask our guests your own questions. I'm D. Rashawn Gilmore, and as always, thank you for the pleasure of your time.